Oh, Heavenly Father, what a, what a um, privilege and responsibility it is to be up here um, again. And Lord, I do just pray that uh, what I say today will be uh, worthy, will be worthwhile, will be helpful. And, um, and Lord, I pray that people will be gracious and, and correct me where I go wrong, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Now I've got glare on it, so sorry. <laughs> okay. I was in a church once. Um, they were looking at a new building program and the pastor told the congregation it was their duty that they had to give 10% to the church first and foremost. They can give to any other causes they want, but for the church they had to give their 10%. Now, last night, I don't know if people are aware of RefNet, but it's, anyway, it's sort of a Christian radio station. You can hear me? Yep. It's a Christian radio station, very loosely, and they actually had a sermon on last night by R.C. Sproul. Now, some of you will know him, but he effectively said the same thing. He said they were doing this build, big building program, and um, he actually went through and actually broke down how much the congregation gave, how much money, and all this sort of stuff, and... Anyway, I won't go into the, 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 any of those sort of details, but, but the point is, as a statement, do you agree with this? Do you agree with this idea? As, as Christians, how are we to use our wealth and our resources? This is a topic that Jesus broached quite often and often used the parables to do it. And, um, and Luke 16, obviously, is, is, is one of those places. So let's just have, let's have a look at this text and see if it helps us. Uh, so just as a bit of lead up to it, immediately before this parable you have the prodigal son, which a lot of people say is the greatest parable, and then you have this one, which some people call the worst parable. And as, as I was looking into it, all the stuff has been written about it, all the way that people try to work through it and understand it and grapple with it, a lot of people have trouble with it and, and it tends to make us squirm and feel uncomfortable. Um, so yeah, so what, what do we do with this, with, with this passage? So again, just a bit of background. If we go back to chapter, um, Luke chapter 15, uh, there Jesus has been preaching and teaching and, and as a result, tax collectors and sinners have been coming to him. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling because a good Jewish teacher just doesn't associate themselves with these sorts of people. Um, according to, to Jewish custom, um, God would only accept repentant sinners um, so they had to come to him and here you have Jesus going out. But in the, in the parables in chapter 15, Jesus turns all this on his head. He's saying that, that it's God who goes out and seeks the lost. And so then we get to chapter 16 where it starts off, he's also, he also said to the disciples. So now he directs his attention away from those on the outside, if you like, to those on the inside. Um, and if you, if you flick back down to, down to verse 14, you can see the Pharisees are still there, but he is here actually telling his people how, the, how they need to respond, how they, they, they now need to live. <clears throat> so in, in our text in Luke 16, depending on your translation, the, the, the main um, character here, the main protagonist, is called either a manager or a steward. So the role of the manager of steward at this time is perhaps a little bit more than what we might assume. He was responsible for both the commercial and domestic affairs of his master. He ran the business as well as the household. 
So perhaps steward is more appropriate, but to, because we've got the ESV and to sort of maintain a bit of consistency, we'll just stick to manager. Um, and as you go through the story, it seems that the, the, the rich man is, he finds out what's happening after the fact. So that suggests he is quite far removed from what's actually going on in his own home and in his own business. So the manager actually has a position of great responsibility and great trust. In this story, we don't know just what it is that the manager's done other than wasting the rich man's possessions, but it's a breach of trust and it's, it's basically a sackable offence. And so once the rich man confronts him, the manager has to decide what he's going to do. So notice that, that in, this, in the story, the manager has been behaving how he wants. Like so many in his situation, he's assuming he just won't be caught. And then when he is caught, he's obviously been careless with his money and he, and he has nothing set aside for a rainy day. So what does he need to do to survive? He thinks about this and decides he's not up to hard work for a living and he's too proud to beg. So he sets about contacting the rich man's debtors and reducing what they owe. <clears throat> he just wipes off parts of their debt. Now these discounted amounts were a huge favour and so the debtors are now in turn in social debt to the manager, so now they owe him a huge favour. The plan is that by this goodwill <coughs> excuse me, sorry. The plan is that by this goodwill he'll be welcomed into people's households. So in effect, the manager robs the rich, robs the rich man to feather his own nest. But the rich man, on finding out what happens, he commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus holds up his actions as an example for us to follow. This is where the story tends to make a lot of people feel uncomfortable and often struggle to find explanations for the rich man and the, and the rich man's and Jesus' response. So as I've looked at this, I've looked at the different ways people have tried to work it out. And here are three rationales that, that people have to, tried to use for this. So number one, Jews couldn't charge interest. Part of the, the Old Testament custom was you don't charge interest. So what we have here is an unspoken practice. So as in the example, if, if you borrowed 80 measures of wheat on the books, you'll put down 100. So there was no interest charged, but the false accounting um, was, was the rich man expecting the manager to still make money out of the deal. And so it may be here that the manager, when he drops the 100 down to 80 or the 100 down to 50, that he's just simply dropping it back to the original amount borrowed. And so this also means that the rich man can't take their manager to court without publicly exposing his own practice. Number two, it may be that the manager um, charged commission on his dealings and this commission was his income. So here he's just simply writing off his own commission. And so in, in the deal, in the examples here, wheat attracted a 20% commission and oil 50%. Now this may be true, but the commission and the percentages do seem a bit high. Um, you know, some of the businessmen here might correct me on that, but um, I'm not quite sure how the business has operated in this time, in this part of history, but um, it seems like a fair bit of money going into the, into the, um, the manager's hands. It could be that in giving these discounts, the rich man's reputation is enhanced. So people now see him as being quite generous for wiping off these debts. 
So now by sacking the manager, the rich man's placed in a no-win situation where his reputation is again under question. Now, there may be something to these explanations or a combination of them, but whatever else is going on, the text tells us, Jesus tells us, that the manager is being dishonest, that he's doing it, He's doing this to make friends and set himself up for an uncertain future. He's scratching people's backs so that in the future they will scratch his. So even though we may consider the different factors in the manager's actions, we can't get away from the fact that his actions are simply immoral or even criminal. He's already been caught for wasteful and and is facing the sack and now he in effect robs a rich man of even more. But notice, the rich man, when he commends him for his shrewdness, he's not praising him for his morality or his dishonesty. He's commending him for his cleverness. I used to have a... got to be careful what I say. Um, Client at work is a a, a, um, chap we used to put services in place uh, to help him out, funds and services to help him out. Uh, To paint a bit of a picture, he was a very angry, very aggressive man. Um, his vile language, his abuse, his threats of physical harm to people meant that most services simply wouldn't, if they, if they started with him, they'd pull out very quickly. <clears throat> but, you know, us, for some reason, we, we persisted with him. And even though I was completely appalled by his behaviour, I couldn't help but admire him. For all the mess of his life, for all, his, for all of his dysfunction... For all of his poor decisions and inappropriate behaviour, he was able to manipulate the system and those around him and manage to make it all work for him, most of the time. So underneath all the issues, he was quite a resourceful and inventive man and he managed to find the ways to use the system, to milk the system, if you like, to his advantage. And so that's what we see in this parable. The rich man doesn't praise the manager's behaviour but his shrewdness just for the way he was able to turn things around to his advantage. So what's the point of the parable then for us? In verses 8 and 9, the sons of light, God's children, God's stewards, he's saying we often lack the wisdom, the sensibleness, the shrewdness of the sons of this world. We need to be using our unrighteous wealth with a view to eternity. Now, the text here uses the term unrighteous wealth. The best explanation I could find for this was Sinclair Ferguson, who said perhaps this should be in inverted commas, and what he's actually saying is worldly wealth. But the whole point is, the worldly people can be better at using their wealth at setting themselves up for their future than Christians are. You see, the manager realised that what he does now will have a direct impact on his future. He used the short-term resources that were available to him for long-term gains. Jesus tells us that the sons of this world, those with no part in the kingdom of God, the sons of this world can be more clever and more diligent in setting themselves up in this world than the sons of light, us Christians, are in setting ourselves up for eternity. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way, Worldly people employ what they possess in light of what they think is their destiny and Christian people often fail to do so. John Calvin wasn't quite so kind in the way he referred to this text. 
Heathen and worldly men are more industrious and clever in taking care of the ways and means of this fleeting world than God's children are in caring for their heavenly eternal life. The Lord is is reproving our worse than spineless laziness that we don't have the same eye to the future that heathen have for for feathering their own nest. So in my daily life now, in my short life now, how do I live out the fact that I'm destined to eternity with God? This is not about buying or earning my way into heaven, but that every expression, every aspect of my life now should reflect where I'm headed. And I'm headed for for eternity with, with Christ, with God. So do my plans and living now reflect that future? So Jesus is telling us, Jesus is telling us to use what he has given us for his kingdom. So 1 Peter 4, and I see, I think, I'm not sure if it's Bertie put that in the newsletter, but 1 Peter 4, 10, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards, sorry, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Here Peter points out that each of us have God-given gifts and that we are stewards of those gifts and and that these are meant to be used to serve one another and so that in everything God may be glorified. Me using my gifts properly doesn't draw attention to me it's meant to glorify God so back to Luke 16 verse 10 Jesus tells us that what we do with the little things we also do with the big things if I can't be trusted with the little things how can I be trusted with the big Um, about 25 years ago I did a truck run we left Melbourne Western Victoria for three days and come back um so on that run, uh, it was interesting. My boss was a great one. He's a butcher. So some of you will say, oh, typical. But he's a great one in adding weights on scales. He's a great one in open up, opening up pre-packed boxes and taking bits and pieces out and sealing them again and selling them as the, as the original weight. But uh, it was amazing. Whenever one of his suppliers was caught out cheating him, you know, oh, you know, the betrayal. It was un- Anyway. Um, but anyway, the point is that the little truck we're in, it was a, a three-seater. The middle seat folded down, had you know, cup holes and stuff on the back. But through the run, all, all the checks and cash we collected were just stuffed under the seat. wasn't unusual, aside from checks, they had $5,000 in cash just stuffed under the seat in this truck. Um, we normally did the truck run together, but, but often you know, the point of hiring me was that he could have time off and, and I did it on my own. Um, because of his dodgy accounting there's no way he could track back what cash was meant to be under that seat when I got back on my own but because um, in spite of my boss I was you know trying to be honest you know novel concept um, um, yeah over time he realized he could trust me and so that five thousand dollars in cash he realized he could trust me with so so um, he's happy to let me do it so because I could be trusted with the little things, he could trust me with the big. Um, in, and so back to the text, in verses 11 and 12, if, if I can't be trusted with unrighteous riches, with the earthly riches, 
How can I be trusted with true riches, with the heavenly riches that are God's alone? God has entrusted us with resources now and verse 12 reminds us that these aren't ours, they're his. And the warning here is that we're called to be faithful stewards of those things that God has entrusted to us. We won't be rewarded for wasting those resources, but we are expected to use them wisely. Remember in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. The master gives one of his servants five talents, another two and another one, each according to his ability. Uh, The first two were able to trade their talents and brought increase to their master who rewarded them. But the the third servant, who's who's labelled as a worthless servant, buried his talent and all he could return was what was originally entrusted to him. So he's condemned and cast into the outer darkness. These may seem harsh words, but in Luke 16, 13, Jesus tells us here that we can only love one master. We can only be devoted to one master. Our problem is that we want to divide our allegiances. We want to serve God here, but not there. We want to give him this money, but that money's mine. Uh, Many, many, many years ago, in my time frame, perhaps not in some of yours, but many years ago, a friend of mine was an apprentice in a small industrial estate. Most of the men around him, inside this whole estate, this little court, most of the men there went to one particular church. And so so this, this, this friend started going and at the age of 16 he was baptised it didn't last he soon realised that on Sunday mornings everyone said one thing did one thing, acted one way but on Monday morning back on the industrial estate the way they spoke, the discussions they had the language they used um, the the way they talked about their customers and clients and and the level of honesty towards their customers and clients was completely removed from what was happening on Sunday. Um, so to use a Ray Patchett phrase, this, this actually inoculated my friend against the gospel. He has no time for Christians now. They're just all hypocrites. But the point is, um, this, this, this friend of mine was surrounded by supposed Christian men who gave Sunday morning to God, but the rest of the week to themselves. This is the very behaviour that Jesus condemns. You cannot serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other. You will either be devoted to one and despise the other. Back in verse 9, Jesus reminds us that the unrighteous wealth, the wealth of this world, will fail. So we are to build up true wealth for ourselves, heavenly riches. So why be concerned over what moth and rust will destroy, but instead to invest in those things that will truly last? So what do we do with all this? So these, what follows now are just my random thoughts. It's not necessarily what what the other elders think. This is just what I'm suggesting. Um, so, so, So tithing, what I found out, especially after listening to this thing last night and doing a bit of reading this morning, is that good, solid Christians actually disagree over whether we should give 10%. Um... The Old Testament system, apparently when you add all the tithes up, actually worked out to closer to 20%. But now post-Old Testament, Jesus now tells us to sell all we have and give it to the poor. 
And in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we are to be extravagantly generous. So we can debate what that means and looks like, but the point is that nothing is ours, it all belongs to God. And he holds us accountable to this and expects us to use what he has entrusted to us wisely. And yes, you know, giving to church is a priority, but the reality is that there are so many worthy causes out there that um, I'd suggest, this is me again, that you know, perhaps it's between you and God how you use your wealth, as great or as little as that is, but to use it wisely with eternity in mind. And so, yeah, just to clarify, I'm not saying not to give 10%. That's a good, a good base and a good rule to start with. Um, and I'm actually rethinking what I'm going to be doing now, but that's another story. Um, but God demands us to be generous with what he has entrusted to us. Um, and something that I was already thinking about when this, all, this survey came up and that Dave talked about this morning. Um, so what are the gifts and abilities that God's given to me. So how can I serve? Um, so just a couple of things on that. So just, just an example. I might think I'm the best singer in the world and I, I, I deserve to be up here singing solo. But if, the re- okay. but if the reality is, if I can't hold the tune, which I think is the reality, um, then obviously that's something the church isn't going to call on me to do. And the other side is that, that I may be a good singer, but the singing roster is already full. So... Um, I just need to sit on that for a while and think of something else I can do. Um, See, in developing rosters and all that sort of stuff, as I'm sure you're all aware, it's a balancing act between who can do what and when and how. Um, And quite often there are other needs in the church that are left unmet. So I I guess what I'm suggesting is to fill out this survey. If you find you're not doing what you think you should be doing, um, not to get too upset about it, um, but perhaps it's a time to think, well, what else can I do? There are lots of ways we can serve those around us not only in the church but in the broader community and um, a lot of these are un- unnoticed and informal. Um, there's plenty of ways people serve that, 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 you know, doing different things that we don't know a lot about. I guess the other point that I would just make on that is that sometimes we can compare ourselves to others. Um, we see some people doing so much and being so active um, so I, I can feel guilty. Now guilt can be a good thing. It can wake me up to, well, you know, perhaps I should get out there and do that. You know, Greg keeps hammering me on Christmas Festival, for example, so... Well, you might. I'm sure you will. But, um, um, so, you know, it might be, yes, genuinely that's something I do need to do. Um, but for some people, you know, and some people do have plenty of time, plenty of money, plenty of resources, and, and they can devote themselves to all sorts of things. But at the, at the other far end of the expect. At the other far end of the spectrum, there are those people who struggle with all sorts of issues and prayer might be what they do. Uh, I'm not wanting to downplay prayer by any means, but at the end of the day, that's, 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 that's the gift they can give. Um, oh, and just, just as Tony was speaking and as um, Nathan prayed... I did this a little while ago up, up front here. I can't remember what the context was. But just thinking about our time. Now, if I live to an average age of a man my age, I've got just over 10,000 days left to live. So work out average your age when you expect to live, subtract it off your years, multiply it by 365. It doesn't leave a lot. <coughs> so me, I've got all being well. You know, I might not get any, I might be like the uncle and only have about 15 more years to live. But... Um, 
Um, I've got 24 hours a day and about 10,000 days left, if I'm lucky. So I'm accountable to that time as well. Um, I'm accountable to use that as a resource wisely as well. Um, so, you know, we've all got commitments, we all need to do things, but, but aside from that, you know, what am I doing? What am I doing with my free time? What am I doing with my spare time? Um, and even at work, what am I doing there? You know, how am I going about my daily business? So I'll leave it off there. That's just a few random ideas from me on, on stewardship, on what we can do with our time, what we can do with our resources. Um, but yeah, so just, I guess what I'm hoping people will take away from this is that God has entrusted us with resources now and expects them to use them shrewdly and wisely. Let's not forget that we're destined to eternity with Christ and that we need to live with that firmly in view and devote ourselves to serving him and only him. So let's pray. So Heavenly Father, uh, we acknowledge that you are the sovereign God who is working out his purposes in this world. And we thank you that, um, as, as Luke 15 tells us, that you seek us out and you call us to yourself. And we pray that we take this gift as the privilege and responsibility that is that it is. Help us see that we are not our own, nor is anything else that we, that we have, but that everything belongs to you. Lord, just tear down our pride and our selfishness. Um, help us see that we are dependent on you and you alone. And help us to devote that all we are and all we have uh, to the service of you and those around us. Lord, we ask you to expose our hearts and uh, show us where our allegiances are divided and help us then to turn, you, turn to you and you alone that, you are our, that our trust and faith and allegiance will wholly be in you. Amen.